Good morning. Valentine's Day is a time, um, it's man-made holiday, man-made, not even a holiday, but it's uh, um, a day that we would um, demonstrate, validate, and, you know, um, the love that we have for our loved ones. So, um, you know, for your parents, for your loved ones, for your children, for whomever that you care and love, um, maybe you can use tomorrow to express that and demonstrate that love that you have by serving them. Um, something to think about. Words are cheap, but actions speaks louder than the words, and that will uh, truly warm up, um, just warms their heart. I, I'm pretty sure that you could do that. So, yeah, think about ways to whom you can demonstrate their love for tomorrow and also how you can serve them, um, make them feel loved. So little encouragement as we face Valentine's Day. Um, if you have your Bible, um, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. However, I'm going to read from beginning in verse 1. So if you're there, would you all stand? We're focusing on 4 through 7, but we're going to uh, just reread what we studied last Sunday. So chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, here is the word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Father, how glorious your word really is. The truth. And through that we receive this gift of life. The blessing of everlasting peace. In Jesus Christ. We receive your word. We open our hearts. We assume the posture that we need before the mighty God, the sovereign King, for you to declare your truth. Lord, we pray for your spirit. Help us to clear our minds, open our hearts, ready to receive your spiritual nourishment. Lord, we pray that you would declare your truth, your truth. And that's what we need and that's what we desire. So Lord, may your will be done Speak through your servant. 
please cover his weaknesses and shortcomings. Please be with your people through your spirit. May you make sense. May you do what this word is designed to do, to teach us, to correct us, to train us, even to convict us, to lead us into action, to love you, to love one another. May your will be done. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so I'm going to highlight verse 4 and 5. And we are taking baby step at a time in this passage, verses 1 through 10. But I want us to read verse 4 and 5 one more time. And here it says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's just powerful to slowly and out loud read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. If you just read it over and over, um, it, it just blesses your heart. And as I said last Sunday, um, as we looked into the past lives, here this First two words in verse 4, how dramatically things would change. Now, there's a great theologian, uh, pastor, whom I look up to and try to study his work, um, is Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones once said in his studies in the Ephesians, he said these two words, but God, in, essence, in essence, in a sense that it contains the whole gospel. In these two words, but God. He says, the, in these two words, the entire gospel can be encapsulated, the entire message of the gospel. Now, do you see it in the two words? Is it a stretch that in these two words, but God, that you could see the entire work that Jesus and the God the Father and the Holy Spirit has done through the cross in the believer's heart. But God. And more and more you read this passage, more and more you will see why such prominent theologian will say such a statement. But God. In these two words, I encourage you to see that you could see what God has done. In these two words, you can see how God has intervened in our utterly helpless and hopeless situation. But God. Now, what was that situation? We looked at it last Sunday. I mean, when we say hopeless and helpless, how hopeless and how dark was this place we were in? That first three verses in Paul's mind, really is God's divine diagnosis. That's God's diagnosis on the people of the earth, the mankind. The condition that we were in, in verse 3, 
1 through 3 would be utterly hopeless and helpless. We're in dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. Not dead physically, but we were dead spiritually. And most importantly, God is spirit. And therefore, we're dead spiritually. That means we were dead in our relation to God. We have zero, no relationship with this God. Therefore, there is nothing we can do on our end to draw us near to God. After all, we are dead spiritually. A dead thing, dead being, cannot do anything. So in our rebellion against God, in our willful opposition to God, men and women of this world were like the walking dead. Why? Here is a divine diagnosis. Because we follow the ways of the world. Because we obey and follow and serve the ruler of this world, Satan. Because we simply satisfied our own cravings and we're into that. Our own desires and our thoughts. So we were dead. You see, this type of understanding is not only in the New Testament, but this Deadness of a heart, the spirit. You can see it in everywhere, even in the Old Testament. And when the time comes, we're going to look into the book of Judges. Fascinating book. And there's a lot of parallels then and now amongst God's people. Now, in the book of Judges, uh, obviously it's the story of nation of Israel, a multi-generational story. And one thing that is famous about Book of Judges is about this cycle. The book is about cycle that the people were on. And this cycle repeats. Now, what kind of cycle is this? Well, at the top of the cycle, top of the circle, these people were good with God. In perfect union with God, great relationship. They were enjoying this blessed state with God. But then as time goes by slowly, what they do is they take their eyes off from God. They started to compromise with God and his command. And they tiptoe the line and blur the line. And they become casual with God and casual with his command. Reverence, the fear of God, recognition of what he has done, for them to inherit this place was gone. And they were soon willfully started to disobey God, disregard God. And they themselves replaced God in their lives. Then what happens is that as they towards the bottom, well, out of love, that God has, out of grace he has, God would discipline them. In varying degree of discipline, God will remind them in, in hope of regaining that relationship they once had, restoring them. But they will head towards further discipline and God will punish them. And God would Punish them by giving the, his people into the hands of the enemy. And in the hands of their enemy, they will suffer. They did. And as they suffer, not right away, 
But as their suffering and pain intensifies, they realize what the cause was and they cry out to God. The void in their lives was caused by no presence of God. So they cry out. And God, in his great love and mercy, because he is rich in mercy. It's interesting, God, when Paul describes God, I don't know whether you guys picked up on that. God can be rich in holiness. God can be rich in justice. God can be rich in his love. God can be rich in grace. But Paul chooses to describe God. God is rich in mercy. In his richness of mercy, overflowing, flowing, merciful heart, he would send his judges to save them as they cry out to God. God, be merciful to us. Look at our pain. Look at our suffering. Be merciful to us. And he was. And he would save them from the hands of the enemy through the judges. He would restore them. He will heal them and bring them back to the top of the cycle in the blessedness with the Lord. But did I say the characteristic of this generation of this book is this cycle? And we don't call it a cycle. It was just repeated once. And sadly, unfortunately, this cycle will repeat again and again and again. And the hardest part for you, if you read the book of Judges, is that it takes longer and longer and longer for them to cry out to God because they get immune and hardened by these things. So it takes longer for them to cry out to God. They would endure more pain, more suffering, and realize that they need God in their pride and arrogance, ego that they have, it takes longer after enduring so much hardships, and then they will cry out. One thing interesting about Book of Judges is that how it ends, the last verse of the whole book. It says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's how it ends. You know, they repeat the cycle after cycle after cycle. Generation after generation, these people do not learn their lessons. And they repeat it and repeat it and repeat it spiritually. Because they have done all the things according to what was right in their own eyes. They live by what was common in the world they lived in. Common trend, the flow of the world. And they did what was right in their own eyes instead of what was right in the eyes of God. Just simply following and satisfying the cravings of their heart. Were we any different from the Israelites? We too have done the same. The divine diagnosis Paul says in the first three verses, that's how we live. We follow everyone else, everyone in this world. We just simply follow what they were doing. We obeyed and accepted the culture we lived in 
and we were busy satisfying what seems right in our eyes, busy accomplishing our plans and our goals without God in mind. Therefore, what happened to us? Paul says, naturally, consequently, we have become the object of God's rest. That was divine diagnosis. That was the condition of men and women of this world, anyone, everyone, without God, without Jesus Christ in their lives. This was the way we were. But then it happened here. What happened in verse 4? This happened. But God happened. But God happened. When we were in that cycle, in that lifestyle, when we were dead spiritually, but God happened. God, this God, being rich in mercy, intervened when no one else could. But God, even though we were running away from God, even though we prefer wickedness and death over righteousness and life, even though we were simply doing what was right in our lives, pleasing to us. But God did not run from us. But God did not forsake us. But God has come to us and for us. But God has done for us precisely what needed to be done. For a spiritually dead person, He has saved you, saved me. He has rescued us from the hopeless, desperate condition that we were in. Now what did God do for us, for you and I? When we were dead in our sin, in verse 5, Paul says, but God made us alive with Christ. You were dead in trespasses and sin. You were dead, but God made you alive. But God made us alive. You didn't. I didn't. No one else in this world. But God made you alive in Christ. Amen? Now, what does that mean? You're no longer dead. You, you're no longer the walking dead. You're alive. You're alive. You're living. Finally. And that's not all. But what God has done, not only called us back to life, out of darkness into marvelous light, but He also, Paul says in verse 6, but God also has raised us up with Christ and He has seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He forever changed you and I. He changed our lives completely. He not only saved us, but He completely changed your status. He completely changed your worth. He completely changed your identity. But God happened. We're no longer slaves to the world, slave to sin, slave to Satan. We're no longer worth nothing, dead person. But we are free men and women to sit with Christ in heaven, to sit at the Father's table and dine with Him. We're alive. We're His children. We're chosen. We are His beloved. Why? Because He made us alive in Jesus Christ. 
but God. Paul says, we were once the object of God's fierce wrath. Yet, but this God placed his fierce wrath upon his son to suffer in our place for our sin. And he has delivered us from death to life. Therefore, we no longer fear God's wrath. We no longer are under God's wrath. But instead, Paul says in verse 7, we're now the recipients of this immeasurable, incomparable riches of his grace that is forever expressed in his kindness to us in Christ. Now, these are the, these are the words, these are the concept of the gospel. Salvation that you have received. But it is just a piece of information that you can repeat. And as I say and preach these things, is it something that you say, Amen, but do you understand it? Do you realize this? What it is and what it does in your life? Do you truly realize what has happened to you? Do you understand who you are in Christ? Really? Not in here, but down here. Not once, but twice. Whenever your pastor is teaching or preaching the gospel, when you run into the such places like uh, Lord's Supper, Easter, Good Friday, Christmas. But every day, every moment of our lives, are we reminded of this but God moment in our lives? Do you understand who you are? What has happened to you? That you are free, that you are alive, that you are saved, that you are forgiven and restored, you're rich, you're blessed, you are His. In these two words, you can pretty much summarize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You can see this God, this God who is rich in mercy took that initiative to reach out to us, come down to us, for us, to save us while we are still sinners, to give us life, to free us, save us, to bless us. If you know the gospel, if you understand this, what God has done in your life, how do we respond? If that is the gospel, then how do we respond? Oh, I responded to God by placing my hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Yes, you have done that. How do you respond to his mercy? How do you respond every day to his grace, to his love? How do you respond? You see, oftentimes, we're very forgetful. And we take things for granted. And we even do that with God. We even do that to our Lord Jesus who died in our place. As we live our lives, we are no different than the Israelites in wandering in the wilderness, questioning, complaining to God. We question complain to God when we feel that we are being treated unfairly by this almighty sovereign God. We question and complain to God when we don't understand God and his, and his ways. 
We complain with our little minds because it is just does not add up. It doesn't make sense. So we complain, we grumble, we question. But one thing we don't ever question, I'll be surprised if you did. I mean, we grumble and complain, question God, why did you save me? Why did you send your only son, sacrificing your one and only son for me? I'd be shocked if you actually question and complain, God, that you, I'm not worthy. Why did you, as a good, good father, you will send your only son to die in my place, a person like me? Why did you do that? Have you ever questioned that? Complain what God has done in Jesus Christ. Why did God save you? Why did he save me? It's just love. He's rich in mercy. He is kind. And he has done all of these things to save you because it has pleased him to do so. He simply wanted to be our God. He simply wanted his people. And it was all possible because of his grace. And Paul says it, by grace you have been saved. Nothing you have done. Nothing you offer. This grace simply means that there is no cause in us. The life that you have, the salvation you receive, there is no cause, there is no reason why God should give you that life. Why God should save you. Why God should spare you from his wrath. There is no reason on our end other than his grace. Sometimes we Christians act and live as if God owes us something. Even after experiencing this but God moment, understanding the gospel, we act in our defiance. God, where are you? As if he has to bless us at all times according to our plan and goals. To answer our prayers. And he wouldn't have an audacity to tell God, God, my weakness in our spirit, walk with God. It is by you. You have to strengthen me. You have to make me want to be a better Christian. You need to motivate me. So we question, we question and complain to God. The reason why we do such thing is because we have forgotten about God's grace. We don't understand this but God moment, what He has done for us in His mercy, in His grace. Because we are no longer thankful for His grace. And therefore, we are just all about ourselves and critical. So again, if we understand the gospel, you got to ask, ask yourself, why did God do this? We know because of his great love and his mercy, his grace, because of his kindness, he made us alive in Christ. He saved us. Then what now? What now? So you know. Now that you are reminded again, so you know. What now? So he loved us before we knew about him. 
So he saved us through his son when we were not worthy, when we were utterly helpless and hopeless, but God came to save us, make us alive in Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, Paul also said there, he demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. So now what? If you know the gospel, what does that do? You see, again, by grace you have been saved. What you do does not merit or change what God has done in Jesus Christ. But what do you do as a recipient of his mercy, his grace, his love, his kindness each and every day? What must you do? You see, when Peter stood up, preached the gospel, who Jesus was, what he has done, these people, convicted by the Spirit, they were cut to their heart. And they came up to Peter and they asked, what must we do? That's the response. If you're convicted and faced, confronted by the gospel and the Holy Spirit, the response is, what must I do? I know who Jesus is, what he has done, I believe. What must I do? Some of you know the story of Lazarus. Comes out in John chapter 11. Lazarus in this story, he had two sisters, Martha and Mary. Particularly in chapter 11, he was not doing well. He was sick to the point of life and death. So. Martha and Mary sent a message to Jesus. And Jesus was delayed. I think he delayed himself, if that's another topic. So he was delayed in coming, but by the time he came, what happened? Lazarus was dead. He was already dead, and he was already buried when Jesus arrived. And when he arrived, Mary cried out and said, Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. She wept. And that's when we see Jesus also wept. But then Jesus asked, where have you laid him? Where'd you buried him? In chapter 11, John chapter 11, verses 38, 39, it says, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. And this is what Martha said. Martha, the sister of Lazarus, said, Lord, by this time there will be an order, for he has been dead for four days. There is an order, because he's dead. Martha was really being realistic, right? Four days, he's been dead. So what, he, what she is saying is, Lord, he stinks. He stinks. I mean, King James Version actually literally says, the translation will say, uh, Lord, he stinketh. That's what it says, literally, King James Version. She's being all, real. That's what happened to the dead body. The process of this natural decomposition had taken place already. This was the true assessment of Lazarus. He was 
dead. There was no breath. There was no heartbeat. There is no blood pulsing through vein. Nothing. He was dead. Therefore, he was rotting away. That was the condition. So in Martha's mind, there is no reason for anyone to open up that tomb, she thought. Verse 40, Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? You believe you will see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his, lift up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people here standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out, Jesus did, with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And this man who had been dead, died for past four days, walking, not as a dead man, but as a living, breathing person. His heart beating, blood pulsing through his veins. Yes, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. But as Jesus spoke, when Jesus commanded Lazarus to come out, call out his name, the man who had died walked, came out. The new life the dead man received. He's not walking as the dead person, as, but he, as the living man. This is exactly what had happened to you and I if you believe and experience this but God moment. You were dead, decaying, rotting, no hope, no future. So what do we do? If God truly called you by name, if that but God moment happened in your life, what happened to Lazarus was what happened to you and I. When you were dead, when you were part of this walking dead, but when God called your name, we respond. You obey. You follow his voice. You listen to his life-giving voice and you follow, you obey. Even this morning, God is calling you by name, speaking to you. Come on out, out of the darkness. Be alive, live, be transformed. He might be calling you, my child, hear my calling. Come on out. What will you do? Will you stay in the tomb? I'm okay. This is the place for me now. Oh, it's uncomfortable. I can't even walk. I can't even see. What do we do? Did that moment take place in your life? Did you hear God calling your name? Did you 
place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ? Did you hear him say, my son, my daughter, come on out. Are you alive? Are you living in the light? Are you new in Jesus Christ? Is that who you are? Is that how we are responding day after day, moment after moment? We're living in the light. What do we do? I understand what God has done, who he is, and therefore, day by day, what must I do? You know, we sing it all the time, right? contemplating singing that song as well. But we say, this love is so amazing. Amazing grace we sing. Is it really amazing? Is it really amazing or are we just saying that? Is that how we respond? Is it amazing? Is it so divine? And the song goes, it demands my soul. It demands my life. It demands my own. If you understand where you were, what he has done, therefore who you are forevermore. What must I do? Love the Lord all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, with all your strength. If you understand the love of God, this amazing grace, what else can we do? What else can we do but to love our God? And love our neighbors as we love ourselves. You see, the problem that we have problem uh, with brothers and sisters, with our own loved ones and people in our lives, having those relational problems is because we're, we're not profoundly dwelling in and immersed in the love of God and not reminded of His love. The person who is truly indebted, it's very difficult for you to operate with other relationships, this horizontal relationship, with that same love that you've been pour upon in your life. As we are reminded of this moment, but God moment, which occurred in your life in various stage, state of your life, you need to ask yourself, What do I do? What must I do? I can ask you this simple question as a saved, born-again person in Jesus Christ, as a pastor. But when you finally ask that question to yourself, until then, it may not do much in your heart. What I'm hoping, what I'm praying, what I'm encouraging you, if we know and if you actually really experience this moment in your life, then you need to ask, what must I do? What must I do? Not as work, but as a person who is just confronted in awe of His grace and mercy, as undeserving as we are. What must I do? Because I am overwhelmed, amazed by your love. What should I do other than offering my life completely to you?
Folks, this is not someone else's story. This is not just only Lazarus' story. This is your story. This is your song. This is how you and I are saved from our utterly inescapable place. And when we were still without a clue of our true worth and condition, he saved us, he reached out to us. And it made us alive in Jesus Christ. And gave you all the things that you can possibly have in Jesus Christ. Quite honestly, what other motivation, what other reason for you to commit to the Lord than just simply going back to remind yourself. But as we people of this modern age get quickly get tired with new technology and new movies and new songs and something new we always search for. It's the new experience that you need to live and relive with the Lord by the help of the Spirit. Who is Jesus and what he has done for you? But God happened in your life, did it not? It needs to happen each and every day for us to be reminded and say with a grateful heart, Lord, what must I do? I'm ready. Let's take a moment to just remind ourselves. And we have done that last Tuesday in our hope of understanding what church is and what salvation is. I want us to take a moment to pray and be reminded the very first moment that when we first realized and we were confronted with this truth and with our own words in our own volition by the overwhelming presence of grace and working of the Holy Spirit. When we pro professed our, we repented from our sin and asked for forgiveness and declare that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is Christ, and we promise and we decide to walk with the Lord as our Lord and Savior. If you can go back to that moment, if you can relive that but God moment, what He has done in our utterly helpless position, with our grateful heart, with our newfound status and identity, this worth that is declared by God in His Son, how should we respond? How should we live our lives? How should we carry ourselves? That is our homework each and every day until we see our Lord face to face. This is the journey that we're on. Empowered and strengthened by His presence. Each and every day, I encourage you, go back to that moment and remind yourself 
the gospel. This is why living by the gospel is so critical in Christians' lives. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your grace and you have saved us, made us alive once again in Jesus Christ. Have that right and privilege to sit at your table, to dine with you, to call you Father, to know you and to be known by you. No privilege, there is none like this. So Father, we thank you. Help us obediently, grateful with joy that we will follow your ways and stay on that path that you have designed and laid before each and every one of us. Thank you for your son. Thank you for all that you have done. And with that grateful heart, may we go back to our homes and our workplaces and whatever and wherever we may be. Lord, may you bring glory, praise, and honor through your people. Thank you, Lord. As I pray, Lord, we are yours and understanding of that truth. Move us into action. The Lord, go with us, go before us. As we depart from this place, Lord, may your will be done in our lives. We thank you. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.